This is a Rooster Teeth production. October 29th, 2018. Lion Air Flight 610, a Boeing 737 MAX 8 with 189 people on board, is taking off from Jakarta, Indonesia for a quick flight to Pangkal, Penang, Indonesia. Two seconds after takeoff, the left control column stick shaker activates and the pilots notice that the airspeed on their respective displays are not showing the same values. The captain begins wrestling with the plane's controls as the plane continues to try and dive. The first officer is having trouble with the checklists, so the captain gives him control of the plane so that the captain can run the checklists. The first officer is unable to keep the plane from diving and it hits the sea 13 minutes after takeoff. What happened to cause a two-month-old plane to crash? Could the crew have done anything to stop this disaster? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 50 of Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Ooh, Hello, Chris. 50, 50, 50. 50, 50. Celebration time. Yeah. Is that like our 50th anniversary or do we get some? 50's the get new like, 40. 50's the new 40. <laughs> I don't feel an episode over 30. <laughs> Wait till we get to uh, geriatric age. Uh, we're pretty much there. <laughs> uh, before we get to the episode, we want to remind everyone to follow us on social media at Black Box Down Pod, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, wherever YouTube as well. We mentioned that last uh, mm-hmm. episode. And just because we're 50 doesn't mean we don't know how to use social media. That's right. We've got the Twitter and the Instagram and <laughs> the YouTube. That, that when you get old, that's what you say, right? You put the in front of everything. Mm-hmm. Or if you live in California and you're talking about highways, you always put yeah. the in front of it. So... This is a fairly recent incident. This is a very high-profile one. This is one that I was kind of eager to do, but kind of also didn't want to do because it's so recent and it's yeah. so high-profile. I think like even people who aren't interested in aviation know about like the problems with the uh, Boeing seven thirty seven Max eight, and you know this incident happened not even three years ago, but it's been very thoroughly documented. Very high-profile crash. There were a couple of them that involved the seven thirty seven Max eight. So I didn't want to do this one initially when we were first starting because I felt maybe a little more unsure, you know, we were trying to learn how things work and how we're going to do these episodes. Now that we've done, you know, this number 50, mm-hmm. I feel, you know, a lot better about trying to tackle it and and talk about it because we have plenty of uh, experience to draw from. Yeah. So Lion Air Flight 610 was a passenger flight from Jakarta, Indonesia to Pangkal, Penang, Indonesia on October 29th, 2018. The flight was crewed by Captain Bavi Suneja, who was 31 years old with 6,028 flight hours and First Officer Harvino who was 41 years old and had 5,174 flight hours. Just a quick side note, it's not uncommon for Javanese people to have single names. And that's the case for this first officer. That was his name, was Harvino. Mm-hmm. One name. So I'm not saying his last name or his first name. That's just his name. Don't want to have any confusion around that. Just the one name. That seems like that would be confusing, though. Well, it's just confusing to us because we're not used to that, right? Like yeah. in in some like Hispanic cultures you have two last names. Like when I lived in Puerto Rico, I would have to introduce myself with two last names instead of one last name. Yeah, but it seems less confusing because it's more clarity. But anyway. <laughs> I'm just saying it's like there's different standards around yeah. the world. Some people yeah. use more, some people use less. So this aircraft, like we mentioned, it was a, a fairly new Boeing 737 MAX 8. It was built also in 2018. Its certificate of airworthiness was issued August 15th, 2018. So it only been operating for about two and a half months. Mm. In those two and a half months, it had about 895 flight hours and 443 cycles. And there were six flight attendants and 181 passengers on board. The flight was scheduled to depart from Jakarta at 5.45 a.m. Indonesia time. It was delayed a little bit. 30 minutes later at 6.15 a.m., the crew began the before taxi checklist. And they were given taxi clearance to the active runway. 
Three minutes later, the crew lined up on runway 25 left and began the before takeoff checklist. They were cleared for takeoff, and at 6.20 a.m., the crew pressed the takeoff go-around button and the engines began to spool up for takeoff thrust. 15 seconds later, the first officer called out 80 knots, which is 92 miles an hour or 148 kilometers mm-hmm. an hour. For the record, uh, we're dealing with a lot of speeds in this episode, uh-huh. and it's going to get really clunky, so I'm not going to always give the translation between all of the different speeds. I'll, I'll try to give it every now and then to give you context, but yeah. just it's going to be a real mouthful here in a bit. So what are you gonna, which one are you going to default to, kilometers? So what I'm going to do is I'll give the knots typically, and then the first time I give a knot reading, I'll give you the miles per hour in kilometers. Then if I give subsequent readings that are close to that, I'll, I won't say it again okay. until there's a reading that's different. So at this point, they're trying to take off. First officer just called out 80 knots, which is 92 miles an hour, 148 kilometers an hour. 16 seconds after that, the enhanced ground proximity warning system sounded for V1, and the first officer called out rotate. And of course, rotate is what they say when they actually pull back on a control column to have the plane take off into the air. Mm -hmm. And V1 is the speed at which they're going to need to take off. There's not enough runway left for them to stop the plane in time. About two seconds later, the nose gear lifted off the runway, and the left control column stick shaker activated, and this continued for most of the rest of the flight. And as we mentioned before, the stick shaker literally shakes the stick of whoever's holding the control column, and it warns them that the plane's about to stall. Wait, so it was shaking from the moment they took off? From the moment they took off, the stick shaker activated, and it continued the entire time for the rest of the, the next 13 minutes until uh, the plane crashed. So from takeoff, they were having a bad time. It was instant. And then as well as the stick shaker activating, the takeoff configuration warning sound momentarily went off. And this, we've talked, I think, about this warning before. It's to alert the crew that the plane is not in takeoff configuration. Either, you know, they forgot to extend the flaps or just like something's wrong uh-huh. and the plane is in a configuration it shouldn't be to take off. Typically, in the past, we dealt with a plane that didn't have its flaps deployed in a previous episode. Yeah, I remember. It was the, uh, the, the, the flight in Spain that crashed on takeoff. Mm-hmm. First officer called out, this was the takeoff configuration warning and the captain asked what the problem was. The first officer then called out auto brake disarm and advised the captain of an indicated airspeed disagree. Auto brake disarm is a normal part of the checklist. They disarm the auto brake when they take off. It's only really used in case they reject a takeoff. So now that they've taken off, they don't need it anymore. Uh-huh. And then when he advises the captain, there's an indicated airspeed disagree that, you know, each the captain and the first officer both have instruments in front of them and they both have airspeed indicators in front of them. Yeah. When they get an error saying indicated airspeed disagree, it means that each of their displays is showing a different speed. But how can that be? Isn't it just the same thing? Just Right. That's a good question. <laughs> so obviously they're not both correct. One of them might be right. Both of them might be wrong. They don't know at this point. All they know is they're both getting different numbers in front but of them. I don't, but isn't it coming from the same input? Like, So remember, there's a lot of redundancies in planes, you know, oh, just in order to prevent these kinds yeah. of things. So one of the redundancies is that they're both going to be fed from different instruments so that if one fails, they still have one working airspeed indicator. Okay, gotcha. That Okay, that makes sense. But like in my head, I was like, but how could they be different? <laughs> right. Yeah. So there's, I mean, there's, uh, you know, redundant pitot tubes. There's redundant angle of attack. There's just a whole bunch of redundancies to prevent things from failing outright. So yeah. in this case, that's why they're being told airspeed disagrees so that way they can figure out whose is right, whose is wrong and use the correct one. Okay. But this is like instant. I mean, they've just taken off. All this stuff's going and wrong. And it's sailing and they're going to stall. And it's like, so there's everything is messing up. Everything's messing up. The captain's indicated airspeed was 164 knots, which is 189 miles an hour or 304 kilometers an hour. But the first officer said 173 knots, which is 199 miles an hour, 320 kilometers an hour. You see now why I said there's going to be a lot of speeds yeah. and it's going to get confusing. 
The first officer questioned the captain on the problem and asked whether he intended to return to the airport. The captain did not acknowledge the first officer's question. Uh, the first officer then called out, auto brake disarm again, and the captain acknowledged this. And at this point, the landing gear was raised. At 621, which is a minute after takeoff, the first officer advised the captain of an altitude disagree, which, like the airspeed disagree, means that they're both being shown different altitudes for the plane. Air traffic control then cleared the flight to 27,000 feet. The first officer asked the controller to confirm their altitude, and the controller responded saying the radar showed they were at 900 feet. However, the captain's screen showed 790 feet, and the first officer's screen showed 1,040 feet. Oh, so they don't know. They don't know how fast they're going, and they don't know how high they are, which are kind of important. Yeah. The captain instructed the first officer to perform some memory items for unreliable airspeed, but the first officer did not respond to this. So basically, the captain told the first officer to go through memory checklists to try to figure out what the problem is without pulling out the book. Oh. But the first officer didn't respond. The first officer then asked the captain what intended altitude he should request from air traffic control and suggested the captain fly downwind. The captain rejected this advice and told the first officer to request any holding point. First officer then asked air traffic control for a holding point, and when asked what the problem was, the first officer responded with, flight control problem. The controller did not acknowledge the flight crew's request to go to a holding point and only remembered the problem reported by the flight crew. Mm -hmm. At 6.22, which again is two minutes after takeoff, yeah. the first officer then suggested retracting the flaps from five to one, which the captain did. About 10 seconds later, the captain directed the first officer to take over the flight controls, and the first officer responded with standby. The controller then noticed the flight's altitude was descending from 1,700 feet to 1,600 feet. And at this time, the captain's altitude said it was 1,600 feet, and the first officer said 1,950 feet. So they're not very high up. No, not at all. They're real close to the ground. Yeah, again, this is, you know, two minutes yeah. after takeoff. They're less than a half mile in the air. They're, what, maybe like a third of a mile up, mm -hmm. uh, if that. yeah. So the flaps were then retracted all the way, and the crew asked air traffic control for an altitude of 5,000 feet. The controller directed them to climb to 5,000 and turned left to a heading of 050 degrees. So that's a pretty northeasterly heading. The enhanced ground proximity warning system then sounded with a bank angle alert as the aircraft momentarily reached a bank angle of 35 degrees. And that's like when the plane's like going left to right, like one wing's tipped more than the other. Mm -hmm. Over the next minute, as the aircraft climbed, the crew reselected flaps one and adjusted their pitch trim. And we've talked about trim before. It's like a, a switch that they can activate that adjusts the, in this case, the horizontal stabilizer on the plane so that it'll automatically have the plane going up or down a little bit. When the flaps were set, the left control column stick shaker stopped briefly. At this time, the flight data recorder recorded that the angle of attack indicated for the captain was 18 degrees nose up, but for the first officer, it was three degrees nose down. So even... The display doesn't even tell them if they're climbing or if they're descending. They don't know. Like everything is backwards <laughs> or like wrong, it seems like. Yeah, just all disagreeing with it. They, they don't have speed, they don't have altitude, and they don't have angle of attack. So they don't know even if they're going up or down. And since they don't have altitude, they can't even confirm that. And the first officer, he's is, is he doing okay? Because he's just... There, well, as you can already tell, I mean, things have gone wrong and there's communication problems, right? Like they're uh -huh. both saying things and the other one's not acknowledging it, which we know you're supposed to acknowledge mm -hmm. it. You know, the captain's asking the first officer to run through some memory checklist items. The first officer can't do it. So yeah, I don't know. You, you've definitely picked up on something there, <laughs> Chris. Just before 623, the first officer asked the controller what the radar showed as their airspeed. Then the enhanced ground proximity warning system sounded with an airspeed low warning. So the plane's telling him you're going too slow. The controller told them their ground speed was 322 knots, which is 371 miles an hour or 596 kilometers an hour. 
The captain's indicated airspeed was 306 knots, and the first officer's was 318 knots. So they're both wrong. Yeah. Wait, so they're both wrong? Well, I mean, I guess technically, so the, the tower's telling them their ground speed. Their instruments are showing them their airspeed. There may be difference in it. They're probably both wrong. Uh, spoiler. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. But they're, they're going fine. You know, the, uh-huh. the plane's also giving them an airspeed low warning. I mean, at the speed they're going, unless their angle of attack is really steep, they're probably okay. But who knows? We don't even know that. Yeah. The crew then put the flaps back at flaps five. The captain called out, memory item, memory item, and tried going through a list in his head, that checklist that he was talking about earlier. Then the automatic aircraft nose down trim activated and deactivated several times for seconds at a time. At 624, the sounds of pages being turned was picked up by the cockpit voice recorder. Then the Uh flaps were moved from flaps five to flaps one, but no conversation about this was picked up on the cockpit voice recorder. What? So they're just in silence? Yeah, they're not communicating what they're doing. I mean, of course, you know, whenever pilots are flying, the pilot flying calls out what he's doing and the pilot monitoring confirms it mm-hmm. to say, you know, almost like acknowledging it and agreeing that, yes, that is the correct yeah. thing to do right now. But they're just making it now at this point, they're just panicked. They're just making adjustments to the plane and not calling it out, not telling each other what they're doing. The captain then commanded the aircraft nose up trim for about five seconds. So the captain's commits saying his stuff aloud. Well, when I say he commanded the aircraft nose up trim, that means he was inputting that command into the plane. Oh, okay. He didn't say it aloud though. No, he did not say it out loud. Oh. He's a, uh, He's adjusting. In this case, on the yoke, there's like a little uh, thumbstick by the right thumb. So he's adjusting the nose trim up. Okay. The first officer, he he's doing the checklist right now? At this point, yes. He, okay. uh, we don't know for certain because they weren't talking. But, you know, like I said, the copy voice recorder did pick up the sound of pages turning. If the captain has his hands on the control and is trimming up, then his hands can't be turning pages. So it has to be the first yeah. officer at this point who is Look, going through okay. uh, the checklist. At 6.25, the crew found the checklist for unreliable airspeed. The automatic aircraft nose down trim activated for two seconds, then was interrupted by the captain who commanded the aircraft nose up trim for six seconds. So the plane keeps trying to trim down for, you know, to go down to dive, and the captain keeps having to, you know, retrim it up to fight it. Because they're too close to the ground. So they- well, the plane, since the stick shaker is activated at this mm-hmm. point, you can assume that the plane thinks it's stalling. And, you yeah. know, the correct thing to do during a stall is to nose down. down to right yeah the captain knows well he doesn't know he's pretty sure he's not stalling so anytime the plane tries to goes down he's trying to trim it back up because he obviously they're pretty low to the ground yeah over the next three minutes the crew began going through the checklist with air traffic control giving them heading instructions every so often but many times the automatic aircraft nose down trim activated followed by the captain commanding the aircraft nose up trim this back and forth fighting on the trim continued many times for the remainder of the flight uh, in fact, the captain gave a total of 34 nose-up trim inputs Man. over the course of this flight. You know, he's just constantly fighting it, trying to get it to go uh, to trim back up, even though the plane's trying to trim him nose down. At 6.30 a.m., the first officer contacted the arrival controller for the Jakarta airport and advised them they were having a flight control problem. The controller advised the crew to prepare for landing on uh, runway 25 left and gave them a heading of 070 degrees. About a minute later, the captain advised air traffic control that their altitude could not be determined because the instruments were all indicating different numbers. It was at this point that uh, the captain actually gives over control of the plane, like flying responsibility to the first officer. I think, mm-hmm. you know, in looking into this, it seems at this point, the captain has become frustrated with the first officer. He thinks the first officer's not finding things fast enough in the checklists. Okay. So uh, he's, you know, he tells the first officer to take over flying the plane and the captain's going to take over 
actually doing going through the checklist and finding all the information that they need. Okay. The controller then gave them a no restriction clearance. They're basically just like, come on in, come on back. Like, at, come back in on any runway or like... However you can, right? It's like no restrictions, whatever altitude, whatever whatever you need to do to get back, you do that. When they do that, or do they tell all the other planes like, hey, stay away? I, I don't know. I can't tell you for 100% certainty what happened at this point mm-hmm. from their perspective. But typically, yeah, they would put everyone else into a holding pattern or start, you know, diverting mm-hmm. traffic around so that we can get this plane back on the ground. Okay. If there's anyone, you know, already in the pro- on like final approach, already landing ahead of them, you know, of course they're going to let them land because they can land and clear yeah, the runway yeah. before this plane gets here. But they're going to give plenty of uh, clearance around the airplane in distress so that uh, it can do whatever it needs to do to get back. At 6.31 and 33 seconds, the first officer informed the captain that the plane was flying down. The captain told air traffic control that their intended altitude was 5,000 feet and the first officer exclaimed again that the aircraft was flying down. The captain responded with, it's okay. About 20 seconds later, the ground proximity warning system sounded with a terrain warning, followed by a sink rate warning, and the cockpit voice recorder picked up the sound of the overspeed clacker as well. And of course, that's like when they're going too fast. It's kind of the alarm that goes off. Three seconds later, the flight data recorder stopped recording, and the cockpit voice recorder stopped one second after that. Air traffic control attempted to contact flight 610 twice with no response, and the radar target disappeared. Air traffic control attempted contact four more times, uh, the controller at the airport sent an assistant to inform the operations manager and requested several other aircraft to hold over flight 610's last known position and conduct a visual search of the area. At about 7.05, a crew on a tugboat found some floating debris about 33 nautical miles northeast of Jakarta that was later identified as part of flight 610's aircraft. So Everyone was killed in the aircraft. And the aircraft was destroyed. Uh, yeah, they, they hit the water. How quickly after the pilot gave controls to the first officer did it, did it hit? It was... Within like three minutes. But was it before that? Was it, I guess, maintaining? So there's a, I I kind of dropped a hint there earlier in this Mm -hmm. as to something that happened here. Like I said, the captain was was continually giving nose trim up inputs. He did Uh it 34 times, but he never said he was doing that. Oh. So when he gave control to the first officer, he didn't, the first officer didn't know that that's what the captain was doing this whole time. Oh no. So, you know, he takes control, doesn't know that. And the plane does what it's been doing this whole time. It's continually trying to nose trim down or trim nose down. And the, the first officer can't fight it. He doesn't. He, he just let it happen. Right. He doesn't think to trim it back up. He doesn't know that it's trimming down on its own. He's pulling back, trying to fight it, but he can't overcome. Like he can't overcome this automated system that's just trying to nose the plane down. What do you mean he can't overcome? Like physically or is it like he just Right. Doesn't... It becomes physically very difficult to pull back. Really? So the report says that the flight data recorder said that a few seconds before the impact with the with the uh-huh. sea, that the first officer's control column was registering 82 pounds of force that he was pulling back pounds. with. That's a that's a yeah. lot of force. Yeah, I want to say that in order to counteract the nose down trim, I'm going off the top of my head here. I want to say he had, would have had to have pulled with 110 pounds of force just to be able to balance out what was happening. So they would have both had to been like pulling on... Really pulling. Like, yeah, imagine, I mean, this thing about like, Sitting in your chair, if you had like something in front of you, uh-huh. <laughs> could you pull back with that much force if you needed to? Like that is so much force to be trying to pull back. And yeah. then you'd have not only just pull it and do it once, to hold it and maintain and it. Hold, yeah. So wait, when the officer, you said the officer was doing it before, like was he doing it more like slowly or like? Well, the pilot was no, he was countering it with the trim commands on his stick. So anytime the plane was trimming down, he was trimming it back up. So he didn't have to pull as hard. Oh, okay. So I, that's not the same thing. 
So I guess I should explain this trim. So when you look at a plane, you look at the tail of a plane, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone thinks about like the rudder that's sticking up and you think about those horizontal stabilizers that come out Mm -hmm. to the left and the right of the plane. Those horizontal stabilizers move. I don't know if you know that. They pivot up and down. Uh So that's the trim. That's what they're fighting with. The plane's trimming them in one direction to try to get the plane to dive. The pilot was trimming in the other direction, trying to get that horizontal stabilizer to turn in the other direction to get the plane to to climb instead. Okay, and so the computer's telling him to go down. The captain was telling it to go up, but then whenever he handed it over, the first officer wasn't doing that and was just pulling back on the stick. Exactly. So why didn't the first officer think to... He was probably panicked. Mm. In the heat of the moment, he probably didn't realize that the aircraft was trimming down. There's... There's <laughs> this this is really this is a really frustrating set of circumstances. There mm-hmm. in the 737 cockpit, I'm trying to think of a way to describe this. Imagine like you're sitting in your car, right? Uh-huh. Let's say you're the driver, you've got the steering wheel in front of you, and like the passengers to your in, in the United States, the passengers to your right, right? Like on the other side of the car. Yeah. And in between you, there's that center console. And normally there's like you can yeah. put like a change in there or a drink, whatever. Imagine that same part on a plane. I'm sure you can picture a plane. Like that part right there would have like all buttons and switches mm-hmm. and things on it. On a 737, on both sides of that center console, there's a big wheel that spins. If the trim is activating, that wheel starts spinning to let pilots know that the trim's activating. So the whole time that the plane's automatically trying to nose down, those wheels are spinning because it's supposed to let the pilots know, hey, the trim's activating. But they're so panicked, they don't realize it. They don't see it. Well, the first officer. Right. The pilot... Maybe he noticed it, but he doesn't say anything. But he's trimming back. You know, he's trimming against it. Yeah. The first officer presumably never notices that these things are spinning. Oh, no. And that's why he doesn't know that the plane's trimming down this entire time. I'll put a photo of these on social media. I'll make a note right now so that you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can find a YouTube video of them in action. It's very difficult to not notice that these things are going off unless, and, you know, he's panicked and well, he is having, doesn't know what's going on. He's probably more focused on pulling Oh, right. Man. He becomes so focused on probably fighting with the control stick that he doesn't realize that the, the trim wheels are activating. And he wouldn't have had to fight as hard if he was adjusting the trim. Right. I'll definitely put photos of the trim wheel in the 737, and I'll, uh, I'll try to put photos of the tail of a plane and, and highlight exactly what I mean. Maybe I'll find a video of those horizontal stabilizers moving when they're being trimmed. That way yeah. you can see exactly what I mean when I say that they turn. Yeah, well, I, I think it's in my head. I see them spinning, <laughs> like turning, but yeah. Yeah, if you ever look at like that tail section with those horizontal stabilizers, you'll see that a lot of times, even if a plane's painted, like that area around there is silver or unpainted or it's scratched up because mm-hmm. those trim pieces move. Yeah. There are countless companies out there that claim to compare auto and home insurance rates, but there's only one that actually gives you an apples to apples comparison. So get better insurance with Gabby, the one true comparison platform with fast, verifiable quotes, not ballpark guesses. You can use your current policy to find a better policy. Gabby compares your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers like Progressive, Nationwide Travelers, all in one place. It's free and they only show you policies that are the same or better than your current coverage, often at a lower price. Super simple to use. You go to their website, you put in your existing insurance information, or you just can link your actual insurance account by logging in. And it looks at what you have exactly and then shows you the exact same coverage at those other places and the prices you pay compared to the price you're paying. It's it's literally, you just look and like, oh, is that less or is that more? It is so easy. It's so quick. I did it myself. I can't believe how fast it is. So Gabby customers save $961 per year on average. They'll never sell your info, which means no spam or robocalls. So put your policy to the test like I did. Get better insurance with Gabby. Totally free to check. There's no obligation. 
Go to gabby.com slash blackboxdown. That's G-A-B-I dot com slash blackboxdown. Gabby.com slash blackboxdown. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Your undies can make or break your day, so make sure all days are good ones with me undies. I absolutely love my me undies. I'm wearing some right now. They're like tacos and hot sauce because I like tacos and hot sauce. <laughs> There's so many different designs. I guarantee you're going to find one uh, with something that you like. Uh, me undies are designed to be the softest thing you've ever worn. I mean, their signature micromodal fabric literally grows from trees. Sustainably sourced undies? Say less. They offer different cuts for different butts, ranging from sizes from extra small to 4XL. So whether you're looking for classic colors or adventurous prints, MeUndies has you covered. MeUndies has a great offer for our listeners. For any first-time purchasers, you get 15% off and free shipping. MeUndies also has their problem-free philosophy. If you're not satisfied with any product for any reason, they'll refund or exchange it. No caveats, no questions. So to get 15% off your first order, free shipping, and a 100% satisfaction guarantee, go to MeUndies.com slash blackboxdown. That's MeUndies.com slash blackboxdown. Look, protecting your data online is super important. You don't want people harvesting your information and selling it, or even being able to trace you and your location with just your IP address. Using the internet without ExpressVPN is basically like taking a call on a train or a bus, on speaker, revealing all your private information for everyone to hear. Don't be that person. Uh, I use ExpressVPN because your internet service provider, like Comcast or Verizon, knows every single website you visit. Uh, In the U.S., they can legally sell that information to ad companies and tech giants who can use that data to target you. ExpressVPN prevents them from peeping in on your online activity by creating a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. Just fire up the app, click one button. It works on phones, laptops, routers, so everyone who shares your Wi-Fi can be protected. I can't tell you how easy it is. It's literally one button in your browser. Click it to turn it on, click it to turn it off. I don't see any reason not to use it. You may as well secure all your stuff and make sure that it's encrypted end-to-end. So secure your online activity today at expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown. Get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown, expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown. And we also wanted to do something a little different this time. We wanted to give you a podcast recommendation from uh, some of our friends over at the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, the SCP Archives podcast. We've worked with them before. If you listen to Black Box Down, when we did our most recent analysis of plane incidents in movies, we talked about... uh, I've talked about Die Hard 2 at length. (laughs) Uh That was the episode. They were the ones uh, chatting with us. Yeah, and SCP Archives is a weekly anthology horror podcast uh, where they have full cast acting, immersive sound effects, and an incredible original soundtrack. And if you're like, well, what is SCP Archives? SCP articles are those like UFO TikToks or like weird web pages with redactions and like conspiracy theories and and monsters and shadow governments. Yeah, it's like all that spooky stuff. It, it makes me think of like uh, the X-Files, uh, like stuff yeah. you would see uh, on there. Yeah, But it's a really great podcast. So if, if you're looking for something that's very like, like a radio play immersive and there might be a special episode that features uh, a plane and some wonderful voice actors. Uh, mm, I'm interested. Hmm. Like you said, I think that's the most impressive thing. It's like it's like a, a, a truly immersive like audio play or radio play or audio drama. Yeah. And there's going to be a, a special episode soon. So yeah, go uh, go check out um, uh, SCP Archives. Just search for them wherever you get podcasts. Uh, just SCP Archives, and then uh, give them a listen and subscribe. Uh, they're friends, and they make good content. Yeah. So this investigation was carried out by Indonesia's National Transport Safety Committee, the NTSC. We talked about them recently mm-hmm. in that Silk Air episode. The flight data recorder was recovered on November 1st from a depth of 105 feet. The cockpit voice recorder was not recovered until January 14th uh, at a depth of 98 feet under 26 feet of mud. So, I mean, it really was down there. 
It was discovered that there were some incidents with this specific plane in the month of October before Flight 610 happened. On the day before the accident, the plane flew from Bali to Jakarta and had very similar stuff happen. The stick shaker sounded during takeoff. It had mismatching instrument indications. And there were a few times they started to descend during the climb. And it turned out in that previous flight, there just happened to be a third pilot sitting in the cockpit. It was actually the third pilot sitting in the cockpit who noticed the trim wheels activating and told the captain to cut the power to the stabilizer trim motors. And that fixed the problem with the airplane oh. descending. So he just, he was able to... Well, yeah, he pointed, he's like, hey, look, your trim's going off all the time on its own. Turn off the automatic trim. And he did, and that they were able to fight it. And that was an option for the other pilots? Chris, this is a standard memory item in 737 checklists. So that's just like... Yeah, it was it was absolutely an option. And they just didn't do it. They, they just didn't do it. I mean, it's easy to say, like, well, they just didn't do it because we're not there, but like... It's not, fr- it's sad. It makes you, it's sad. Um, you're like, yeah, that, that's what I said earlier when you're asking like, you know, why didn't he do it? It's like, this is, this is actually a really frustrating set of circumstances that lead to this. Mm-hmm. So this previous crew that we're talking about the day before on this Bali to Jakarta flight, you know, after they do this, they start performing the unreliable airspeed, the altitude disagree, the runway stabilizer checklists. While doing these checklists, they actually re-engage the stabilizer trim cutout switch. But again, the plane started pitching down again. So they cut off that, switch again yeah and they kept it off for the remainder of the flight at this point they felt they had control of the aircraft and they continued their flight to jakarta because there was no land at the nearest suitable airport in the checklists uh-huh. in reality they probably should not have continued their flight they probably should have returned to the airport they were taken off from but it wasn't in the checklist they continued and their flight was fine and they landed in jakarta the captain made a report about the problems that they had encountered however he left out the activation of the stick shaker because he thought it was an outcome of the indicated airspeed disagreement problem. He didn't think it was a separate problem on its own. The fact that it was trend, it was shaking the... Right. He, he, he thought it's because there was airspeed malfunction. The, the, the airspeed was being read wrong. <sighs> he also did not report the runaway trim stabilizer and the use of the stabilizer trim cutout or the use of manual trim for the flight and landing. What? The, the, how? But why? I don't know. He just, he just didn't report it. But that's... Just, <laughs> It was the main problem. How do you not report the plane is broken? Well, it's like he reported a lot of things that were broken. It's like, yeah, speedometer is broken. He didn't report. Yeah, it was also trying to kill us. <laughs> <laughs> but like the fact that the plane's tr- act, the autopilot is actively like. It's actually trying to dive. Yeah. yeah. That's. <sighs> so the NTSC thinks that his incomplete report was based on his incomplete understanding of the relationship between all of these effects that he experienced during the flight. And the system failures that caused those effects, despite the fact they had isolated the problem after the stabilizer trim cutout switch were moved to cut out. So it's like <laughs> they knew that this automatic stabilizer needed to be turned off. And yeah, he just didn't connect all the dots and reported the small problems. It, it's again frustrating. Yeah. Further, the requirement to report all known and suspected defects is obviously very critical for engineering to be able to maintain the airworthiness of an aircraft. So you know, he reported problems and I mean, they didn't look at the, when it goes into maintenance, they don't look at all the problems because they don't realize everything that's wrong. Yeah. You know, and of course the maintenance engineer in Jakarta reviews the captain's report, you know, and starts to conduct tasks to fix the altitude disagree problem. Some of those steps include flushing the pitot and static air data modules and doing a leak test of the left pitot and static systems. Uh, we've talked about these before. The pitot tubes are like yeah. little tubes that stick out from the plane that measure pressure to then determine speed. Yeah. So after he flushed all these out, you know, if the observed fault was gone after the flushing, they considered the problem solved. But the engineer did not perform a leak test 
and he considered the problem to be solved and sent the aircraft back into service. He cleaned them out, but then didn't check them? Right. Even though it's on the checklist of things to do, he didn't do it. He just assumed that it was, well, it's probably fine. Right. He's like, oh, well, I, I did the thing that it said to do. It's, that's, I'm sure that fixed it. Oh, my God. And then on top of that, the maintenance log did not show that either engineer attempted to solve the indicated airspeed disagreement problem. They didn't even look at it. No, they were like, ah, that, that, that was probably it. That pro- that'll probably take care of it. And that process is similar to the altitude disagreement process, but it deals with the right pedo and static systems. Wait, so they didn't even rinse out both the tubes? Right, they did the ones on the left side of the plane. They didn't even bother with the ones on the right side of the plane. But what if it was the right... I don't... I don't Chris, I don't know. Sorry, <laughs> I guess, I, like, I'm what, like, what, Gus, what, why didn't they... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, their checklists say that, you know, they they followed. They, they were supposed to do the left side for the altitude disagreement and then the right side for the airspeed disagreement, but they just didn't even bother. And then, of course, the important thing is after they flushed the left side, they were supposed to test it. And that would have told them, you know, hey, it's still wrong. Maybe we should do the right side as well. Or it would allow them to continue down the checklist and do the other things to fix the problem. Furthermore, these steps require performing some checks and visual inspection of the angle of attack sensors, but not the values recorded by the angle of attack sensors. And these are just like, I don't know how to describe them. They're like almost like tiny, well, not tiny, small little um, piece of metal, almost like little winglets that stick out from the sides of the plane Mm -hmm. that when the wind hits them or as the plane's going forward, they move into different positions to deflect the wind. And that's kind of how the plane figures out what angle it is either going up or down. That's angle of attack, like uh, how the plane's pitched with respect to the wind. So it was discovered later that this previous flight had a 20 degree difference between the two angle of attack sensors, which shouldn't happen. The pilots were not aware, though, because the angle of attack disagree message was not enabled and was inhibited, so it did not appear on the pilot's screen. So the things that measure the angle attack were calibrated wrong, I guess? Like- or they're just giving different values. Okay. But the, the crew didn't know it because it didn't pop up on their screen. Okay. If the message had come up, the flight crew would have likely reported it, and the engineer would have been required to check the values of the angle of attack sensors and would have known to fix the problem. So this particular plane, the 737 MAX 8, was supposed to include an angle of attack disagree message on all aircraft, but the software which generates the message did not include the message for aircraft that were not installed with angle of attack indicators. Lion Air had elected not to enable angle of attack indicators on their primary flight displays, therefore the angle of attack disagree message would not appear on their planes. (laughs) The lack of angle of attack disagree message did not match the Boeing system description that was the basis for certifying this aircraft design. So basically, the airline just opted not to have these kinds of messages pop up on the display. I know you're going to ask why. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like, it, it, it seems fundamental that if something's wrong with the plane, you would want the people flying it to know. It doesn't pop up. So how do people find out that it's a problem? Like, where does it that information go? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a good question. I guess like the autopilot would, for example, start malfunctioning or start acting weird. You know, when it's trying to climb or descend, that's one way that they would be able to tell that something's okay. wrong with it. So they would they would figure it out through the repercussions of these. Yeah, or in this case, the plane would be trying to constantly trim down because its angle of it, it thinks the angle of attack is different than what it actually is. Yeah, it thinks it's going. It thinks it's, it thinks it's going it thinks up. It's climbing, right? Yeah. It thinks it's climbing too steeply, so it's trying to to trim down, which is exactly what happened here. Oh. So the software not having the intended functionality was not detected by Boeing nor the FAA during the development and certification of the 737 MAX 8 before the aircraft had entered service. Soon after, Boeing reviewed the situation and concluded that inoperative angle of attack disagree message 
on selected aircraft did not represent a safety of flight issue. One consideration was that additional maintenance alerts like stuck angle of attack or bent angle of attack were still available. As a result, the implementation error was scheduled to be corrected for the next display system software update. So I guess they weren't too concerned because they said that other error messages about the angle of attack indicator were still working and that they were going to take care of this at some future time. Okay. I guess in their mind, an angle of attack disagree would most likely only happen if one was stuck or one was bent. And those error messages are still coming through. So as long as those are coming through, you don't need the angle of attack disagree. It's not as important. But obviously in this case, you can see it's still possible to have an angle of attack disagree even if one's not stuck or bent. So I guess we'll find out what happened? Why it disagreed? Oh, okay. I mean, we're, I feel like we're only scratching the surface. How long we're, we're, we're recording for like over 40 minutes at this point. There's still so much to get to here. So, on top of all of this, so uh-huh. we've kind of covered the pedo system, the angle of attack. There's another system that's particular. It was introduced with the 737 MAX 8. It's called the Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System. That's referred to as MCAS, M C A S. Cool name. Sounds cool until it tries to kill you. (laughs) So this is a flight control law that was intended to mimic pitching behavior of previous 737 generations, correcting the angle of attack situations by electronically adjusting the horizontal stabilizer and trim tab to push the nose down. Does this sound familiar? Mm -hmm. So basically the reason that this exists the 737, like I said, this MAX-8 was new. This it had just been built and delivered in 2018. The 737 as an airliner has existed for 50 years at this point. The 737s were introduced in the 60s, Chris. Yeah. So what happens in this case is Boeing was under pressure. I'm, I'm going to go on a little tangent here about planes. Airbus had introduced a plane to compete with the 737. This is before the MAX existed. Mm-hmm. This new Airbus, it was A320neo, was, you know, it had better fuel efficiency, could carry a bunch of people. It was a direct threat to the 737. And 737 is a very popular plane. This is mm-hmm. like Boeing's cash cow. So okay. Boeing knew, it's like, well, crap, there's this A320neo that airlines are wanting to buy. You know, what are we going to do to counter that? So, you know, if they go back to the drawing board and try to come up with a new plane, that takes years. That takes a really long time to develop and launch a brand new plane. Okay. They're like, well, we don't have that much time. The A320neo is like, People, they're taking orders for it. You know, people are starting to buy that plane. We need something now to fight that. So they said, well, we can try to put more fuel, bigger and more fuel efficient engines on the 737. The problem is, like I said, 737 started flying in the 60s. They didn't have space to put bigger engines on the 737 because then they'd end up scraping on the ground. When is this? When is this happening? This is a couple of years before. So I, I would estimate this is probably like 2014, 2015, somewhere around there. How do they not have a new plane after 60 years? The 737's been updated. It's not the same plane that they launched. Yeah, okay. You're right, yeah. So it's been updated. They just, they don't there's have just a, a... Right, there's a new iteration that they're having to compete against that they're not ready for. Okay. So the most recent, before the MAX 8, the most recent update of the 737 was when Boeing launched the 737 Next Generation, and that launched in 1997. So, so that's still... You, old. That's, that's a... How are they not ready? How? I can't speak specifically to what they were doing, they probably spent a lot of time, you know, doing development of like the 787, mm-hmm. uh, the Dreamliner, which took up a lot of time. You know, that was super delayed. They bet a lot on that plane. That ended up being a successful plane, but maybe they just got blindsided by focusing over there. Yeah. How many, sorry, I'm, I'm tangenting again. Th- these companies, how many planes do they, like models do they have? 
there's a lot. <laughs> like I, I've, I've mentioned the 737, right? Mm-hmm. So, and I mentioned that the most recent version, the next generation, came out in 97. Even within that group, if you call something a 737 next generation, there's four different kinds of 737 next generations. There's okay. the 600, the 700, the 800, the 900. So, you know, you have like these classifications and even within there, there's different kinds. And I mentioned the 787, you know, they launched with the 787-8, then they quickly moved to the 9, they're rolling out a 10 soon. So you hear like a a blanket model type and then there's specific subtypes Mm -hmm. within that. So it can get really confusing very quickly. Okay. But anyway, the point I was making was the A320neo, Airbus started shipping this in 2014. It got certification from the FAA in 2015. So this was, you know, pretty recently in the grand scheme of things. So Boeing needed to do something to combat the A320neo. They decided, let's put bigger, more fuel-efficient engines on the 737, and that'll be our competition. We're going to call it the MAX-8. That's where the MAX-8 come from. Okay. Problem is, they try to put these bigger engines on the 737. They can't. They just don't fit. Like, the engines are going to end up scraping the runway if they do this. Uh, If you look at 737s, like next generations, some of them, you'll see that even then, the bottom of those engines are kind of flat. It's not a perfect circle because they have to try to get enough ground clearance for them. So their solution to this is to move the engines forward on the wing and kind of up. So they're not mounted the same as they are in the other 737s. When they do this, though, it kind of changes the center of gravity of the plane. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, obviously these engines are bigger, they're further up, the plane doesn't handle the same. So this is a problem. But they want to be able to get this plane out quickly and they don't want pilots to have to retrain for it. So they tell everyone, don't worry about it. It's not going to be an issue. And what they do is they come up with this MCAS system. And they don't tell anyone that MCAS exists. What? what MCAS does is it tries to automatically, without the pilots knowing, it tries to automatically adjust the way that the plane's flying so that it feels more like flying an older 737. So it tries it, to make subtle adjustments to the way that the plane's climbing or diving so that it kind of compensates for that changed center of gravity. So it's, it's that sounds scary. Yes, it is. <laughs> and well, it's, it's only scary because they didn't tell anyone uh huh. No one knew this existed. It, like when the NTSC is investigating this uh, crash, that's when Boeing's like, "Oh, hey, we have to tell you something." That's <laughs> when it happened. They didn't. That's when they. That's when they find out MCAS exists. No one knew. You're saying no one like, knew. Not just like the pilots. Nope. Not even engineers. Knew. No, it wasn't. It wasn't documented anywhere. The airline definitely did not know. You know, Boeing knew they developed it. Yeah. But they had not communicated the existence of this MCAS system. Oh my god, that seems like someone got fired for that. Man, it's should have. Well, we're, we're gonna we're gonna get to some of the fallout from this. So, in theory, this should be really helpful to pilots. Obviously, it's not. Here's a problem, though. Like you know how earlier I talked about how many redundancies and backup mm-hmm. systems there are on planes. MCAS was designed to only rely on one angle of attack sensor. Oh no! Saying so, guess what was broken on this or what, what was feeding angle. bad data on this plane? Angle attack sensor. The right. One angle and. And there's there's multiple ones on a plane. It was only relying on one. And on this plane, the left angle of attack sensor was reading 18 degrees up, which is considered too high for normal flying, which is why it was constantly trying to trim down because it was trying to get back to what it thought was level, but was actually a dive. How did that get passed by whoever? Like if it if there are. So so normally I like this podcast. I I always like this podcast. (laughs) That, That sounds bad. Normally, I like this podcast because it reassures you and it tells mm-hmm. you why things are safe and how things are are learned and, you know, lessons that are taken. Yeah. In reality, there's a real problem here. 
Boeing is a big American company. And as such, the U.S. government's incentivized to have them do well. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the FAA oversight and the approval for the MAX 8 was deferred to Boeing. Boeing was allowed to kind of oversee some of their some of themselves and do some of their own certification. Mm. You know, there was really very lax oversight from the FAA in this stuff. In fact, like there's been lawsuits and legal proceedings because of this. In internal emails, Boeing laughs about the FAA, saying that the FAA can't do anything to stop them and they can do whatever what? they want. Yeah, it's it's a nightmare. It is a mess that this even happened, that we got to this point. Yeah, that at least it's well at least we know now. Now everyone's <laughs> aware of it and it's a thing and we're talking about it on a podcast. So yeah, I mean that's the point of this kind of stuff is like the problem is I bet being worked on now. Yeah. I mean Boeing was operating knowing that at the time the FAA had no teeth to enforce anything on them. That Boeing could do whatever they wanted. They could self-certify and self-approve things and it wasn't going to be a problem. So that's that's how MCAS gets through to this point. Mm. So Boeing conducted a functional hazard assessment of the MCAS and they found both an uncommanded MCAS operation up to its maximum authority and an uncommanded MCAS function operation equivalent to a three-second mistrim were major hazards. I'm going to explain what all this means here in just a second. Okay. Boeing assumed that uncommanded system inputs are readily recognizable and can be counteracted by overriding the failure by movement of the flight controls in the normal sense by the flight crew and do not require specific procedures. I guess I should start explaining now. So what's going on here is Boeing is saying, yeah, this could be a problem, but any average competent crew can identify and rectify this problem in three seconds. Mm, And their assumption was that the crew can overcome this with the flight controls. It doesn't require a specific procedure or checklist. Their other assumptions are, action to counter the failure shall not require exceptional piloting skill or strength. Again, any average pilot can do this. The flight crew will take immediate action to reduce or eliminate increased control forces by retrimming or changing configuration of flight controls. And that's what the pilot was doing. He was yeah. trimming. Trained flight crew memory procedures shall be followed to address and eliminate or mitigate the failure. And like I said, a yeah. memory procedure for the mm-hmm. 737 was to do your stabilizer trim cutoff, but they didn't do it. Because they were panicked. They were panicked, right. Boeing advised that these assumptions were used across all Boeing models when performing functional hazard assessments of flight control systems and that these assumptions are consistent with requirements contained in federal regulations and FAA advisory circulars. And the previous crew did do that. Right, the previous crew did it. Again, I will say, I will note, they happened to have a third pilot in the cockpit who's riding along, and he's the one who pointed out that their trim wheel was activating. Mm. Who knows? They may have noticed it on their own, but it was that third pilot who, who pointed that out to them, yeah. and that's why they did the stabilizer trim cutoff. So this particular crew in 610 who did crash... This flight crew had flown together twice prior to the accident flight. Since the accident flight crew was presented with the same indications as the previous flight, the investigation looked at the flight crew's training and proficiency, the flight crew's workload, their awareness of the aircraft condition before the flight, and their crew resource management. Also reviewed was the non-normal checklist procedures, memory items, transfer of controls, flight crew communication, and the lack of MCAS training or flight crew awareness of MCAS. So basically they're just looking at everything that the crew did and what they should have known at that point. After the indicated airspeed disagree had been identified, the captain instructed the first officer to perform memory items of airspeed unreliable, and the first officer did not perform these memory items. Yeah. The first four items of the airspeed unreliable non-normal checklist are memory items to be performed by memory and must be done before reading the checklist. The captain repeated the command about two minutes after without mentioning the non-normal checklist title, and the first officer was confused about the memory items to be performed. About one minute later, the first officer asked the captain 
of the memory item to be performed, to which the captain responded, airspeed unreliable. So the first officer doesn't even know what he's supposed to be doing. The first officer acknowledged and started to locate the checklist. About one minute later, the first officer found the checklist and started to read the checklist. The inability of the first officer to perform the memory items and locate the checklist in the quick reference handbook in a timely manner indicated the first officer was not familiar with the non-normal checklists. This condition was the reappearance of misidentifying non-normal checklists which showed on the first officer's training record. So he's having trouble remembering his mental checklist and he's having trouble finding what he needs to do in the checklist. And these are items he's been dinged for in his training record. Oh. This has been an ongoing issue with him. How well-trained was he? How, how many flight hours? Or? He was a pretty established pilot. He had 5,174 flight hours. So he'd been flying for quite a bit. Hmm. Item number eight of the airspeed unreliable non-normal checklist requires the flight crew to cross-check the captain, first officer, and standby airspeed indicators when the aircraft is in trim and stabilized. Uh, Basically, just check them all. Airspeed indication requires to be compared with a table and an indication that differs by more than 20 knots should be considered unreliable. The flight data recorder recorded that the differences between the captain and the first officer's airspeed indicators was about 15 knots, which was below the value to be considered unreliable. So they were off, but they weren't off by enough to be a problem. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. They're off by 15 knots when you really shouldn't worry unless it's more than 20 knots. So yeah, it shouldn't have affected their ability to dis- to make decisions, but the autopilot was messing up also. So yeah. Correct. Despite the flight crew's attempt to execute the non-normal checklist due to increased workload and distractions from air traffic control communication, the non-normal checklist was unable to be completed in that situation. The unfinished uh, non-normal checklist made it difficult for the flight crew to understand the aircraft problem and how to mitigate the problem. So basically, they just got hung up on the checklist. They didn't complete it. They were having trouble with it. And it prevented them from really identifying the problem that was going on. While the aircraft control was being transferred by the captain to the first officer, the right altimeter indicated 5,900 feet. The pitch trim was 5.4 units. Uh, A few seconds later, the MCAS activated for eight seconds and the pitch trim changed from 5.4 to 3.4 units. So it's nosing down a bit. Mm -hmm. First officer commented on the abnormality of the aircraft control, but did not clearly specify the abnormality. So maybe at this point, if he had said, hey, it seems like it's pitching down or it's trimming down, maybe the captain would have said, oh yeah, it was doing that to me too. But he didn't say anything. Yeah, he didn't specify what was happening and the captain was probably frustrated, scared, preoccupied, and he didn't think to say anything about it at that point. The first officer commanded aircraft nose-up trim. He actually actually trimmed it up, and the pitch changed from 3.4 to 3.6 units, but the pitch trim continued decreasing as the following activations of MCAS were not countered by the first officer sufficiently trimming the aircraft nose-up. So he actually did trim it back up, but then the MCAS just kept trimming it down, and he didn't counter it. The control column force increased up to 103 pounds while the aircraft still descended, Uh, which indicated the force exerted was insufficient to maintain aircraft altitude. That's what we were talking about earlier. It's just how strong do you have to be to not only pull that, but then maintain it. Is it, is it, I guess I was thinking like it's all automated, like power steering, but. It is, it it, it is all automated. It's all like fly-by-wire stuff, but you still have to exert an amount of stress to counteract what's happening. To Mm. like really let it know that that's what you want to do to overcome the countering force that it's delivering. But how can it be programmed where it requires 120 pounds of force. Like, how can that... Why couldn't it be more sensitive than that? Does that make... You know what I mean? Well, like, then if it's too sensitive, then when you give inputs, it's way too much. Okay. Oh, and there's different modes. Right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, it's like if it was too sensitive and you pull back, then it's like, then you could put into like a crazy high climb. 
mm-hmm. you want to have a sufficient amount of force in that. I mean, there's also, I mean, maybe this is a bad example, but in my car, there's actually mm-hmm. different settings you can use for the steering wheel. Yeah. Like you can make it so the steering wheel is really light and the wheels turn easily, or you can make it to where like the steering wheel is heavier and you need to give it more force to turn. Personally, I like having to give it more force. Mm-hmm. Like I don't want it so hair trigger on me to where yeah. it turns uh, like out of nothing. Yeah. During the repetitive MCAS activations, the captain managed to control the aircraft altitude when the pitch trim was maintained above five units by commanding the aircraft nose up pitch trim to counter the MCAS trim down. So he, like I said, he did it 34 times while he was flying. Yeah. You know, he's constantly trying to trim up. The first officer was unable to control the aircraft as the repetitive MCAS activations were not countered by adequate trim up input. And that's the other thing, you know, it wouldn't have required 103 pounds if he had been trimming up. Yeah. Right, if he'd been giving that, then it would have been easier to pull back. The common flight crew reaction to a heavy control column is by providing adequate trim. So you see there, I mean, that, that, that says that. You know, if your control column's too heavy, you give trim to make it easier to move. Mm-hmm. So this suggests that while the captain's training or experience enabled him to recognize the need for sustained nose-up trim, the first officer's training and experience did not. Mm. This condition was also in agreement with the first officer's training records that showed several comments indicating that the first officer had difficulty in aircraft handling. The Lion Air policy for such deficiencies was that flight crew would be treated with additional briefings or rehearsal. The reappearance of difficulty in aircraft handling indicated that the treatment was not effective. So this guy had had, the first officer had deficiencies in uh, manually hand flying a plane. The absence of flight crew discussions of the previous problem suggests the flight crew might not be aware of aircraft problems that might reappear during their flight. This was different compared to the flight crew of the previous flight who had awareness of the aircraft condition after discussion with the engineer about aircraft problem and the rectification prior to the flight, which may have helped the flight crew immediately identify the problem correctly. Being unaware of multiple problems that occurred on the previous flight, including stick shaker activation and uncommanded aircraft nose down trim, led to the inability of the flight crew to predict and to be prepared to mitigate the events that might occur. Contributing factors are defined as actions, omissions, events, conditions, or a combination thereof, which if eliminated, avoided, or absent, would have reduced the probability of the accident or incident occurring, or mitigated the severity of the consequences of the accident or incident. The presentation is based on chronological order and not to show the degree of contribution. So these are just nine different factors that led Uh to this. And they're presented, like it says, they're presented in chronological order. They're not in order of importance. Just like in the order that things went wrong, These are the contributing factors. There's nine of them. During the design and certification of the Boeing 737 MAX 8, assumptions were made about flight crew response to malfunctions, which, even though consistent with current industry guidelines, turned out to be incorrect. Like I said, Boeing assumed, oh, if something goes wrong, a pilot can identify and rectify it in three seconds. An average pilot, uh, which obviously turned out to not be the case. Yeah. Based on incorrect assumptions about flight crew response and an incomplete review of associated multiple flight deck effects, MCAS's reliance on a single sensor was deemed appropriate and met all certification requirements. So, I mean, it, like, like I said, it, the fact that MCAS used only one sensor met certification requirements, in hindsight, maybe that shouldn't have been the case, you know, and, and thinking about all the redundancies in a plane, it doesn't quite make sense. There's like double or triple backups for a lot of things. Like we talk about hydraulic systems that have three or four lines just in case a couple get ruptured. But here we are, MCAS is just operating on a single angle of attack sensor, which which is a huge problem. Yeah, MCAS was designed to rely on a single angle of attack sensor, making it vulnerable to erroneous input from that sensor. I mean, that's exactly what we just said. 
The absence of guidance on MCAS or more detailed use of trim in the flight manuals and in flight crew training made it more difficult for flight crews to properly respond to uncommanded MCAS. So again, MCAS really wasn't in the manual. So people did, the, mm-hmm. the pilots flying didn't know that it was there, that, you know, what to do to counter it. How, how could that, yeah. The angle of attack disagree alert was not correctly enabled on Boeing 737 MAX 8 development. As a result, it did not appear during flight with the miscalibrated angle of attack sensor, could not be documented by the flight crew, and was therefore not available to help maintenance identify the miscalibrated angle of attack sensor. So they just didn't get that disagree alert. So they didn't know it was miscalibrated. Maintenance didn't know to fix it. It was just there was a problem that they weren't being alerted to here. Mm-hmm. The replacement angle of attack sensor that was installed on the accident aircraft had been miscalibrated during an earlier repair. The miscalibration was not detected during the repair. So this just goes back to when they were trying to fix the the problem and they didn't go through the checklist, you know? Yeah. They just replaced some parts, flushed the system, and decided that was it. The investigation could not determine that the installation test of the angle of attack sensor was performed properly. The miscalibration was not detected. Again, that's kind of what we said. There's no way to know that the test was ever performed or because the miscalibration was not detected. Mm Mm-hmm. Lack of documentation in the aircraft flight and maintenance log about the continuous stick shaker and use of the runaway stabilizer non-normal control meant that information was not available to the maintenance crew in Jakarta, nor was it available to the accident crew, making it more difficult for each to take the appropriate actions. Yep, and we that's the guy who didn't... He omitted this, yeah. this fact. The multiple alerts, repetitive MCAS activations, and distractions related to numerous air traffic control communications were not able to be effectively managed. This was caused by the difficulty of the situation and performance in manual handling, non-normal checklist execution, and flight crew communication, leading to ineffective crew resource management application and workload management. These performances had previously been identified during training and reappeared during the accident flight. So again, they were just overloaded, poor CRM, and the first, it was some of these deficiencies were known with the first officer. And mm. retraining just hadn't worked, and you know all these problems surfaced at the worst possible time which is when you really need to rely on that training. Mm-hmm. Wait, they didn't mention the engineer or the, the tech crew not cleaning the other tube or testing it again? I mean, so they kind of briefly touch on it when they say that um, the angle of attack sensor was miscalibrated and that it was not detected during the repair and that they couldn't determine if the test of the sensor was performed properly and the miscalibration was not detected. So they do mention it, they just don't like really drive home. That, uh, that it was maintenance. Yeah, okay. So that, I mean, that, those are definitely maintenance issues. So on November 7th, 2018, on the basis of preliminary information gathered in the investigation of the Lion Air incident, the FAA issued an emergency airworthiness directive requiring that amended operating limitations and procedures relating to erroneous data from an angle of attack sensor be inserted into the aircraft flight manual of each 737 MAX aircraft and urged all airlines operating the 737 MAX 8 to heed the warnings. On October 25, 2019, after the release of the final report by the NTSC, the FAA revoked the repair certification of Florida-based Extra Aerospace LLC, which fixed an angle of attack sensor suspected of contributing to the crash. So you talked about the repercussions for maintenance. I mean, they revoked the certification for this one company. Good. uh, That did the maintenance. Pilots of American Airlines and Southwest Airlines converting from earlier Boeing 737 next-generation models to the 737 MAX were not informed of the MCAS link to the fatal crash, leaving them concerned that they were possibly untrained with respect to other differences. So that's what we talked about. No one knew MCAS was there, so everyone starts wondering, what else is in this plane that we don't know about? Oh. <laughs> like, are there other things yeah. that we don't, that, that might cause a problem? Right. It's like, they already didn't tell us about one thing that crashed this plane. What other things are you not, do, do we not know about? Yeah. 
In November 2018, Aviation Week reviewed the 737 MAX Flight Crew Operations Manual and found that it did not mention the MCAS. American Airlines Allied Pilots Association and Southwest Airlines Pilots Association were also caught unaware. The Wall Street Journal reported that Boeing had decided against disclosing more details to cockpit crews due to concerns about inundated average pilots with too much information. So, I mean, so this was their excuse. It's like, oh, we didn't want to overload average pilots by letting them know too much that's going on. It's like, but, you know, well, this is... This yeah, is a system. You, you might have to fight this thing. And at least knowing that it exists, like someone knowing it, you know, like... Right, it wasn't even in the manual. Yeah. It's, it's kind of ridiculous. On November 15th, 2018, the U.S. Airline Pilots Association, which is the largest pilots union representing 61,000 pilots, urged the FAA and NTSB to ensure pilots receive all relevant information addressing a potential significant aviation system safety deficiency. The Pilots Association's United Airlines branch, in line with its management, disagreed as the 737 pilot manual includes a standard procedure to shut down the flight control behavior and dismissed the MCAS implementation in the accident as speculation based on the Boeing Safety Warning Bulletin and the follow-on FAA Airworthiness Directive. So even there's some disagreement among pilots, and it's a tough line to walk because... You know, these airlines rely on Boeing to supply them planes. Do they want to piss Boeing off potentially uh-huh. by badmouthing them in public? And we've kind of talked about this in the past. It's like when you point blame, you know, does the airplane manufacturer really want to blame its customers for crashes? Do the airlines really want to blame the manufacturer who, you know, who they have to deal with to buy these planes? And also if they, if they, people are like, they know they fly those planes, it's kind of like shooting yourself in the foot in a weird way. Yeah, it's, it's a really tough situation all around, you know, if you have to come out and publicly say something about this. On March 10th, 2019, another 737 MAX 8 operated by Ethiopian Airlines crashed shortly after takeoff from Addis Ababa. This raised further concerns about the safety of the 737 MAX, and this culminated in all 737 MAX aircraft being grounded worldwide for 21 months. Mm. So after that second crash, you know, after the Lion Air thing, like I said, these um, airworthiness directives were uh, released. They kind of tried to let everyone know uh, you know, that MCAS existed, things to counter it. But, you know, five months after the Lion Air crash, this other Ethiopian Airlines plane crashes. And at that point, they say, that's it. We can't allow this plane to fly anymore. So it was not allowed to fly for 21 months. Wow. Yeah, until Boeing corrected these problems, you know, figured out new procedures and allowed it to fly again. And finally, it was only it was only recently, it was as of this past March, 2021, oh, wow. that uh, all aircraft to return to service. I want to say that, they started testing it back in December of 2020. I think American Airlines flew their first MAX flight. Then as of this past March, they've all uh, returned to service. And is this mostly just because they moved the engine? The the MCAS? Yeah, the MCAS thing and the engine being shifted. and Yeah, I mean, all of this problem is because of these new bigger engines and how they tried to fit them onto the 737. Mm. Uh, so I know... A question people might have is like, well, then why don't they make like the landing gear longer, right? Like make the plane sit up a little higher. But it's like all these things are all interconnected. The problem is that the way that the fuselage is constructed for the 737, they can't expand the size of the gear. They have to fit within the, the existing wheel wells. Like they, they, there's no way to make them. Yeah, you change one thing and then there's a ripple effect. You have to change that and, you have to change, and then you're just designing a whole new plane, right? Right. Then, then yeah, they're back at square one where it's like, oh, we're just the whole thing. We have to redo it anyway. Yeah. So also on social media, I'll post some photos comparing, I'm going to try to find some, comparing the different 737s and the different engines to show how they're mounted differently and how big these new engines are. Yeah, I want to see. To give you uh, an idea of that. 
So I'll have those photos up on uh, social media so you can check them out. It was interesting to me because when all this was going on, you know, like I said, the the first incident happened in this one we're talking about right now, uh, October 2018. Then the Lion Air one happened in March of 2019. And it was interesting because I decided at that time I was going to start watching the Boeing stock price. Oh. Because then you start to wonder. It's like, well, Mm -hmm. then is this really going to negatively affect them? And it was remarkable to me how even in spite of all of this going on, how relatively flat the stock price was. Huh. It wasn't really until... COVID in the airlines shut down that the the stock really took a dip and it still, you know, has not come back to previous levels. But it was honestly, it was a little scary to me to see the stock be unaffected by the fact that this entire plane was taken off out of service, you know, for 21 months. You know what I think that is? Hmm. If I can speculate, it's it's because generally speaking, people know airplanes are safe and I feel like people don't think about individual flights and then like getting rid of a plane. I don't know. You say that, but I mean, my counter would be even casual people who don't know anything about aviation know the name 737 MAX 8 now. They know Mm -hmm. that plane. They know like, oh, that's the plane that crashes, which is not something you want to know about a plane. (laughs) My my takeaway from the, you know, the stock price being relatively flat is a little more maybe cynical. It's that People who invest in this stock know that the U.S. government will not allow this company to fail. No matter how bad they mess up, that they're going to be saved or bailed out. Which makes me scared because then I start to wonder, does Boeing even learn anything from this? You know, (laughs) if there's there's no real negative repercussions. Well, there's repercussions of like, they had to like not let their planes fly for 20 months or, you know, whatever it was. And that's got to have a, at least an impact on their budget. You know, like they built all these planes and then they can't use them. And they have to spend time fixing them. So yeah, that's true. And it, it does cost them money for that, yeah. for sure. But, I mean, just for comparison's sake here, I'm trying to look real fast. Uh, around the time that this Lion Air plane crash happened, the Boeing stock price was about $359 a share. Mm-hmm. In February 2020, right before it dove because of COVID, it was at $340. Between those two points in March of 2019, it peaked at $440. So even after the Lion Air crash, it continued to go up. Wow. After the Ethiopian airline crash, it did go down a bit, but then it stayed at a relatively flat level. So I really worry, like, you know, how in bed the FAA and Boeing were as far as you know, like wanting to have Boeing be able to compete with Airbus because Airbus is a European based mm-hmm. plane manufacturer. You know, that's just like the conspiracy theory side of me. <laughs> like worried about like how much can we really trust these companies if they've become too big to fail and the government's going to try to uh, allow them to fly. I didn't even get into this, but. After the second crash when Ethiopian Airlines, um, that Ethiopian Airlines crash, most countries in the world forbade the 737 MAX 8 from flying. The FAA in the United States was the last country to ground that plane. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, which is really scary and really telling about how in bed uh, the regulatory agencies and the manufacturer are. Yeah, yeah. Again, that's why I'm really unsettled by this one. And I said, like I said earlier, normally I feel like this podcast is very reassuring. It tells you all these things that we learn and things that improve. This one exposes that maybe things weren't were a little more frail than we thought they were. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's it. That's uh, Lion Air Flight 610. A super, super complicated flight. It, too often, you know, I see people get on the news and talk about it. You know, and on news, they, they, have, they have to have like sound bites and they have to explain things very quickly. I feel like it's all kind of glossed over. It's, the, the complexity of it's never fully 
appreciated, you know, in like yeah. a one minute news segment. But when you start a to talk about it, to this, there's this so many a, reasons yeah. why it happened. This is one of our longest episodes ever, if not the longest episode. And that's the, again, this is the reason why I wanted to wait so long to cover this because it's so involved and there's so much going on in order to fully understand what happened here with the with the Max Eight. Uh, I don't know if we'll ever do that other Ethiopian Airlines incident. Maybe we will at some point in the future. But again, it's just it's just tragic. Neither of these should have happened. These are these were brand new planes and mm-hmm. just uh, tragedy for sure. But uh, that's it for this episode. We're gonna this like we said earlier. This is our fiftieth episode, so we're not gonna have a new episode next week. We'll be back in two weeks with some supplemental content. We take a couple of weeks off after every ten episodes or so to. Uh, write and develop the next batch of episodes. So in two weeks, we'll have some supplemental content and we'll be back with a brand new main episode here a few weeks after that. But so stay tuned. We'll have some new stuff for you uh, before you know it. And thank you for 50 episodes. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the support. Really, uh, I think, you know, we've, uh, we have far more listeners than I thought we would. I felt like this is going to be an incredibly niche podcast and I've been really, really happy with uh, the number of people who who enjoy it. And, you know, they let us know on social media and uh, it's, all, it's, all, it's nice to read those things. Yeah. Oh, oh, don't we have new merch? Oh, we do. Thank you, Chris. Coming in with the save. <laughs> yeah, we have a, a new shirt. I haven't. Tr- I just got it. It's in. It's in the packaging still here on my desk. I, I have it on my desk because I meant to talk about it. Yeah. I just forgot. Uh, yeah, we've got a, a, a new shirt. Uh, did we launch the mug? Do we have a mug in the store? We, 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 oh, yeah, yeah, we do. <laughs> okay. I think so. I think so. At this point, yes. So yeah, we got a mug. So go check it out. Go to uh, store.roosterteeth.com. And uh, you can check it out there. But Just do that's a search on there for a black box down. What? What else? We have more? Yeah. Don't we have a patch, like a, a little like sticker, a little black box down logo? Oh, thing we do have the sticker. That's your, right. Like, yeah. Yeah. There's a bunch of cool stuff. Oh, so uh, Dennis just chimed in. The, all the merch launches two days after this episode oh. comes out. <laughs> so so, so shh, don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> but in two days, we're gonna have a bunch of new merch. Yeah. At our but, but it's on a panel, which you should also come to. Yeah, so if you uh, we're doing a, a virtual panel for RTX, which is an event uh, here. Well, I guess it's online. Normally, when it's in person, it's in Austin. We're doing it virtually this year. If you head over to rtxevent.com, we're going to have uh, an event. You can join us uh, on Saturday, the 17th of July. We'll be uh, doing some special Black Box Down content. And showing off all those new merch. Yeah, and then you can tell them that we told you about the merch. Yeah. So July 17th at 1 p.m., uh, you can head over to rtxevent.com. You can watch a live stream uh, as Chris and I do some Black Box Down stuff. So uh, check it out. Uh, and then after that point, that's when we'll have our new merch available in the store. And w- I promise you, I'll wear some during that panel. I'm sure Chris will too. That way you can see exactly what we're talking about. I'm wearing some right now. Oh, nice. Well, it's the same. Sh- I- I'm wearing the same shirt I wore yesterday. You saw me in it. I, I did see you yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> it's a... A new shirt. I've washed it. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, hopefully we'll see you at that panel and we'll be back soon with uh, brand new episodes. Thanks. Bye.